middle of Manhattan. Aw, freak out. Being a Manhattanite. Let, let's <laughs> I can tell you one thing that's just so unbelievably perfect New York. The very first hit record Chic ever had was a song called Dance, 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 Yowza, Yowza, Yowza. The way that Bernard came up with that bass line, when you ride the subway in New York, it makes a sound, and it's gonna it always go. It all, we used to always say that the subway sounds like it was galloping, and we always tried to get that sound. Like we were listening to other R&B bands at the time, and the funk bands were much more, they were influenced by a different vibe and different rhythms. And when we came up with our style, it was really based on the subway that, you know, you ride the train and it's always going in our heads. That's what we always hear because we concentrate on the other things being musicians. Yeah. And that's the first thing Bernard said, yo, man, you know how we always talk about when we're on the train, that riding thing, that zoom, da, da, zoom, da, da, zoom, da, da, it was like galloping. That's actually what we thought of when we did the first record. Yeah, and so that was that was actually the guitar rhythm guitar pattern. It was actually the bass pattern. Actually, uh, the well, it, it actually had a chronological life. What happened was the very first thing that we did that was absolutely almost rhythmically note for note the way we hear the subway was actually the song called Everybody Dance. Huh. That was the very first thing we wrote. And then once we got that down and we realized what it was doing, that zoom, it's, I don't know how to explain it. Bernard always called it galloping, and then my style was the chuck, which was the antithesis of the gallop to us. And uh, so we did Everybody Dance, but the single that we released first was Dance, 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 Yowza, Yowza, Yowza. And it was a more of a refinement of the original wheels turning in the subway concept. So, I mean, it's a little bizarre, but that's <laughs> yeah, cause a lot of, that's where it really A lot of the from. records that you made uh, are, are, are uh, characterized by that uh, dovetailing of the rhythm guitar pattern and the bass pattern right. fitting together like a jigsaw puzzle, a funky jigsaw puzzle. And, uh, and so you got that from the subway. Yeah, Bernard and I always wrote our songs together with my guitar in my hands and his bass in his hands. So it wasn't like, because Bernard's a terrific guitar player. He didn't pick up the guitar and play guitar when we wrote songs. He played the bass when we wrote songs. Yeah. Well, like, if you could talk a little bit about the places that you grew up and the places that you absorb musical influences from, uh, like uh, the Lower East Side sure. and the Bronx. and. When I was very young, the, the musician that was uh, commonly played in my house was jazz, was what they used to call in those days modern jazz, more like the the, the Charlie Parker types and, uh, you know, Clifford Brown, you know, Max Roach, Miles Davis, um, that, that sort of school. Uh, the John Coltrane influence came into our home, but it was mainly more the bebop uh, jazzers. But in the neighborhood where I grew up, it was on the Lower East Side, it was all, uh, it was a Jewish neighborhood. So the, the music that I would hear was uh, a lot of um, Eastern European stuff, heavily, heavily music that sounded to me like Greek music, you know, that sort of, that modal kind of stuff. Um, a and then I also lived on the borders of Little Italy, so I heard a lot of Italian music. And then I lived, you know, in Chinatowns, you know, so all that Lower East Side was all very, very ethnic because people played it. They were first generation, sometimes second generation, immigrants but they still had a very solid connection to their roots and you obviously you were you were playing at quite a young age and and you were trying to emulate some of those different styles yeah when I when I first started playing music um, I wasn't playing it on the guitar I, I played flute because um, I learned to play 
in the uh, in the school symphony orchestra. And in those days in New York, I guess these programs were quite well funded. They believed that these things were a necessity in human life and development. So uh, every time I changed uh, to a new school, for some reason they never let me continue on the instrument that I was already making progress on <laughs> because they sort of cast the band, if you will. Uh, I guess it was a precursor to the Spice Girls or something. But, but anyway, back in those days, they would say, okay, we need this and we need that, so that's what you're playing. Because by the time, you know, I'd only been on an instrument for six or seven months, I wasn't really a virtuoso. So it didn't make any difference to the teachers that they, they would change me. The great byproduct of that is that by the time I was, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old, I really knew how every instrument in the symphony orchestra functioned, which was pretty good for a young kid. Very good. Um, and good experience for later when you were making records. Right, exactly. It's, it's funny that what's, what's happened in my career is that all of that early stuff gave me the preparations for what was to follow. Um, sometimes I worked with artists that their roots were really heavy into the blues. And even though that wasn't what was mainly predominant in my household when I first started out, when I moved in with my grandmother in my teen years, the blues played a huge influence in, in my life when I lived with her because that's what she listened to. But early on, a lot of the ethnic stuff, I had, uh, it was just all sort of stuff going into my computer to be recalled later on. Yeah. I remember the first recording, I think the first professional recording I did was uh, an album of Jewish uh, traditional songs, you know, Lacha Dodi and stuff yeah. like that. It was the first thing I got paid for. It's <laughs> like, so, and, and what was funny about it is when I did the record, I knew it already. I, I already knew those songs. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the places that we're covering in New York is the Apollo, and uh, one of your early gigs as a guitar player was being in the house band there, and yeah. we'd love to hear what it was like, what the scene was like that you suddenly found yourself in. The, the coolest thing about uh, being in the house band at the Apollo was that they test your musical knowledge, to the, they pushed it to the limit, because the way it used to work then, if I remember correctly, I think uh, we did two shows a night, and it actually could have been three a night, but it was certainly two a night and three at the matinees, or three a night and four on the matinee days. So it was a huge amount of work, and you had to learn it all in one sitting. So it didn't make any difference to management what your musical responsibilities were. If you had to play for five different artists, so be it. If you had to play behind one artist, so be it. So that's just how it was and you had to do a great job of recreating their music. So you had to be a, a good reader. You had to be a feel person because you had to switch musical styles depending upon who they book. So for me, it was fantastic because I got a crash course in R&B music because R&B music, even though its roots may be founded in the blues and folk music, the truth is, is that based on the different communities and neighborhoods that it comes from, the, the sound is completely different. I mean, when we came up with Chic in the 70s, our sound was totally different than Parliament Funkadelic and totally different than Sky and Confunction and the Gap Band. Yeah. Although we'd sometimes all play on the same show, but the music was different. And if you listen to our music, you couldn't necessarily say, oh, well, we understand that their musical influence is the same. There would be nothing that would be so overtly revealing in our sounds. So the same thing w was the truth with earlier R&B. Um, so one night I could find myself playing with Aretha Franklin, and then the very next day I could be playing with somebody like Screaming Jay Hawkins, which 
<laughs> I mean, maybe one or two songs and styles might overlap if it were blues related, but for the most part, it was very, very different. And how did it work? First of all, how did you actually first get the gig? I got the gig because I started out with Sesame Street. And uh, the woman who was the star of Sesame Street at the time was named Loretta Long. She was married to one of the managers of the Apollo Theater, whose name was Peter Long. So she, when Pete needed a replacement for the guitar, uh, because Carlos Alomar got the job with David Bowie, he left. Now, he created an opening when he left the Apollo. I was with Sesame Street. Well, the Apollo was paying better than Sesame Street. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and it was an easier gig because yeah. with Sesame Street we were touring and doing all sorts of the, the Apollo was the same place. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing that was really funny about it is that I got the chair at the Apollo because Carlos Alomar vacated. I got the chair at Sesame Street because Carlos Alomar vacated. Well, he he did a lot of nice yeah, things for you. It was you. great. Keep it was the on. whole it was the whole Luther Vandross Carlos Alomar clique in the early days, uh-huh. and and that same clique wound up becoming. The major influence in chic. I mean, Luther Vandross is the one who sang on our early records and yeah. did, helped us with vocal arrangements. Absolutely. Well, okay, let's talk a little bit about the arrangements with chic because, first of all, you created a new sound not only with the uh, jigsaw puzzle of funk that you created between you and Bernard, but also your use of strings. Right. Let's talk a little bit of that because I'm an arranger and so I'm really interested to hear how you well, came up with that. The the orchestral um, influences in chic are sort of non-traditional. We didn't want to be like Barry White, but we loved the, the fact that strings automatically telegraphed sophistication to people. If you look at a lot of the jazz recordings, you know, you'll see it says West Montgomery with strings. And all that, you yeah. know? So strings had the ability to transform a person who was quite hardcore into something that was more bedroom, if you will, or more sitting room. So we said, well, all of the funk bands are really hardcore. How do we take our hardcore sound and soften it or whatever, or make it more palatable or make it more parlor room or make it more sophisticated? We thought strings. And Bernard knew that I was an arranger because before we did Chic, we did arrangements for other artists. You know, the most notable one was we did it for Ashford and Simpson. Mm. So, um, you know, we had the orchestration knowledge and I had the background, and I could do that and do all the onion skins and stuff like that. So it was just what we did. I mean, that's what I used to do in school. So try to do it professionally. And uh, the very first project seemed to be great. I actually didn't even do it for the public. I actually did it to impress my uncle, who was a fantastic orchestrator who could just do huge symphonic scores in his head. So I went and I orchestrated uh, Gershwin, Bessie is My Woman Now, and I played it what we would call disco style with my band, with Chic. And that was the very first thing we ever, ever did. Great. So that was our way of softening our sound. We knew that uh, prior to getting the record deal with Chic, um, most people looked at us as a fusion-esque type of rhythm section. So we figured that, well, if you take our fusion-esque aggressiveness and put some lush strings over it, it would work. The thing is, is that what wound up happening is once we started orchestrating for Chic, the, the jazzer in me started to come out. So like when you hear the first record and we'll have things like, um, you know, dance, 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 
we use the strings as punctuation when we go dance do 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 dance dance whoop we a scoopy a doopy a boop dance boop 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 do we damn you know so we started filling in all the holes exactly but then you have things like lost in music for scissor sledge which is parallel motion everything that you're not supposed to do we do and it makes a humongously great statement uh, once again i started stealing things from gershwin uh sister sledge you hear all that almost sort of silly type of ornamentation on things like he's the greatest dancer we go oh what wow he's the great you know little yeah. things like that uh the tremolando strings on that diminished chord uh -huh. <laughs> it's like it's all stupid high school orchestration but when you do it in the right places it actually means a lot it's where the the sum total becomes greater than the individual parts yeah. it wasn't like i was going to start doing arrangements like klaus ogerman or anything like that these were more sort of the burt Bacharach meets barry white school exactly and i i also when i first started hearing your stuff i thought that what you were doing was actually using strings in a way as horns because they were quite playing horn frank, parts yeah, a lot. Quite often, yes. And, and also, you know, there was an influence of the Philly thing, mm -hmm. but it was much cleaner Well, here's, much here's more some, rhythmic. Here's something that was really cool is that strings have a certain sound to me. They, they invoke a certain feeling of peace most of the time. And what we did was we started to push the envelope uh, with, with Diana Ross. When you hear songs like Upside Down, I, I found out a trick on my very first album, on the very first Chic song ever made, which was Everybody Dance. We had a clavinet player who used to be one of my jazz weekend gig guys, and uh, he couldn't play funky enough. He was a great jazz player, and I loved him, and I just wanted him on the records because I was so happy I could hire him. People had been hiring me. <laughs> um, but when I wanted him to play funky, Lo and behold, I realized he couldn't do it. So I had him just play whole notes, and then I keyed the rhythm from the guitar. So he's just padding, dun, dun, dun. But when you hear it on the 12 inch, you hear this guy and go, dun, dun, So I realized that I could key his rhythm because the engineer, Bob Quimmon, said, hey, man, you know, we could fix this problem. You can make him funky by you playing funky Nile and you just have him play whole notes. Yeah. So Bob Clearmont taught me how to do that. And I pulled that out of the arsenal again with Diana Ross by having the strings pad. And, but when you hear him go upside, you know, and it's all yeah. funky sounding, Diana Ross couldn't believe that. And the string players couldn't believe it. I mean, they're sitting there playing and they're playing whole notes. But meanwhile, what's coming out is all of that was our chic, organic way of trying to imitate what guys like Giorgio Moroder would do on the sequences. Uh -huh. We thought that the, when we first heard Giorgio Moroder, we thought that he was the funkiest musician that ever walked the planet. <laughs> we thought he actually played like that. <laughs> so we tried to take our musicianship to a higher level by imitating that kind of musicianship. We had no idea that there was a machine doing it. Really? <laughs> we yeah. had no idea. <laughs> we thought that, that when, like it's funny, when we would hear craft work, we knew that it was a machine doing. When we heard Giorgio, for some reason, we thought he could play like that. <laughs> we were like, man, that's, that is, to us, that was Herbie Hancock-like perfection. Like, yeah. you know, just perfect, unbelievable precision. Yeah. 16-note 
perfect and we just wanted to be those guys yeah well it's, yeah, I've said that a lot a lot of people through the years have said oh yeah synthesizers they're ruining music no they actually push musicians to greater heights which is exactly what you're talking about well in my case uh, the synthesizers and sequencers uh, absolutely changed my whole style of playing when I first heard Giorgio Morota I just said to myself that guy is God. I one day want to meet him. I want to jam with him. <laughs> Anybody who can play that funky and tight is my man. And that's how I came up with the concept for I Want Your Love. That whole rhythm uh -huh. guitar on I Want Your Love is me trying to imitate what Giorgio does on those Donna Summer records. And uh -huh. I was like trying to do... <laughs> I thought he was playing. I feel doom 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 Yeah. I had no idea that he was, that he played doom 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 and he would go we had no idea it was like amazing and when you hear what we would i would have my musicians play all of that acoustic piano stuff we were trying to do what they were doing in europe with machines we had no idea that that were machines coming up with those sounds as a matter of interest how many strings did you use for the typical chic string section uh well at, at, with success the string because i know it wasn't those four girls you were no using. no no <laughs> with, with success the strings kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger i mean probably i would say well i i remember when i thought i think i'm losing control here <laughs> uh, at one point i walked into the session and i had booked four double bases and i thought you know i'm just not sure the sound needs to be quite that full but um i would typically have 20 violins 12 violas somewhere in that neighborhood four cello and uh two double basses that, that would be pretty good enough to make our that's pretty sound. big yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that would be. Right I mean, up. on the early records, it obviously wasn't that because it doesn't sound like that. No, on the early records, it would probably be half that, and uh, and we doubled. Uh, I boy, do I hate to say this. Even after twenty five years, it still bothers me. Go ahead. That what we would do was in those days we really couldn't afford to do anything, so the old trick was to tell the orchestral players that they didn't do it right, and then you have them record it again, and you're secretly doubling it so you can get the. You can get the size of the orchestra to be twice as big. So I think on the very first Chic record, like on Dance, 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 we may have had um, 12, 6, 4, and 2, possibly. Uh -huh. uh, we may have even only had 10, which wound up coming out to 20 violins. Uh -huh. right. um, but see, the tricky thing is that if you're writing for first and second violin, because you have the luxury of having violas, they can pretty much tell that you're doubling, you know, <laughs> by the way you write the part. That's right. So they knew what was going on. They were cool about it. They didn't yeah. say anything. That explains, because I, I worked with Bernard uh, on the ABC record. I did the right. strings for oh, him cool. on that. And, and he wanted to do that, to double everything. <laughs> and now I understand why, because I wasn't... You know, I had a fairly big string section, but every time we say, he said, fine, but you know, he, that's not good enough to tell me. And tell the engineer, yeah, yeah, record that again. <laughs> so he got that from you. <laughs> well, it was an old trick. I mean, yeah. that's what they taught us in school. They would say, watch out for those producers and arrangers that call you up and ask you to do it again, because you're supposed to get paid for that if you do it again. <laughs> so now, of course, being in New York, another thing is you had access to the greatest musicians in the world to hire. That was another great thing is that to be young kids and to be elevated to the status of studio musician and be the new kids on the block and have access to 
I mean, you look at those early Sheik records and you see that lineup and you go, how the hell did he know? How did, how did they know Gloria Augustini? How did they know David Friedman and all these cats? You know, where did they come from? How do you get to Sammy Figueroa? How do you get to all of the jazz guys that you would see on our records? Because we would do pickup gigs together. I remember the first time I met Eddie Daniels and cats like this, you know, it's like they were, they were famous. The Brecker brothers were famous, you know. Uh, to hire the Brecker brothers to play on my record was like incredible to me. And uh, what was your typical horn section at that time, and who was, who were the horns? Well, see, the thing is, is that there was no such thing as the typical horn section because if you look at Chic Records, the lineup would change fairly regularly. But the fact that we were able to get John Fattis right <laughs> playing trumpet, and you know, and uh, Alex Foster—I mean, we we had the cats. You know, all of the hot session players in town were there and uh, you know would just charge us you know like double scale which was what they would charge for Frank Sinatra records and uh -huh. stuff. so we felt honored that they would come and play on our records and we felt honored that they respected us and we felt honored when we would read you know magazines because in those days being a musician was a very respected thing and you could buy magazines like Downbeat and you'd have an interview with a guy like a John Faddis and he would say things that would just warm my heart. He said that the most important one note he had ever played in his career, in his entire career, this is John Fattis, who's a monster, he says uh, the song by Chic, I Want Your Love, and he, and he sits down and he says, I want your love, I want, bip, your love. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great note. <laughs> that is the most important one note. Yeah ever in my career he just thought like he said man when I was playing that arrangement and I hear this lush thing going on and all I do is go beep yeah and it makes the hook <laughs> it and does if, if yeah. it doesn't if it doesn't go I want your love I want beep your exactly. love it doesn't sound like the song and I, I stole that technique completely outright when I did a record called Spy in the House of Love for What's Not oh, right. Yeah, yeah. and that little note where it goes I am a spy beep in, in the, the house, house. I, I, I ripped I it right it. off from you man <laughs> Thanks. Okay, pleasure. Um, also, give me a reason why New York has always been such a mecca for great musicians. I mean, it's always been that way. I think that probably, uh, without trying to act like I'm the New York historical genius on the music scene, it's probably because New York was the, the center of immigration. You know, people coming from Ellis Island are bringing those important ethnic sounds and ethnic patterns in their music. You gotta remember, at least this is what I feel, no matter how tough things get, music is the one thing that we always can share. It doesn't make any difference. So you could be sitting in a foxhole somewhere, fighting a war, and you're still in there singing. You know what it just it becomes part of who we are as people. I mean, you can imagine people coming over in steerage on ships and they're just having the most miserable time in their lives but you can sing a song and the whole place gets into it and next thing you know a party develops right there on the spot in the midst of incredible misery a person can sing and all of a sudden you forget that you're in misery and you feel like you're in Vegas watching a show mm. and uh, with all of the heavy influx of immigrants that would come to New York City they all bring music with them they bring music and dance music and dance those were the things that you could carry in your body you didn't necessarily have to have a record because the human being could reproduce those things. And I guess once New York became known for having great music from burlesque to clubs to 
yeah, Vaudeville Brill building. Too. Yeah, all of that. <laughs> Even more musicians came from farther away. I mean, you you grew up here, and you you didn't decide to go to L.A. You stayed here. Right. Yeah, I didn't move from New York and go to Nashville or go to some other kind of music mecca. New York was the music mecca, and not only did we not leave here, but we wanted to represent here. Mm. We were very proud of the fact that Chic even though we were coming up in the disco slash funk era, we were very aware of the fact that we were not Rufus. We were very aware of the fact that we were not Parliament. We were very aware of the fact that we were not Earth, Wind & Fire, Cool and the Gang even, who were from Jersey. I mean, mm -hmm. we still thought like, well, even though Cool and the Gang are from Jersey, they have more of a sound that we represent, but we wanted to be across the river and hone and define our sound uh, and make it even more urban and slick, if you will. Yeah. We were all about slick. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> good slick. Yeah, we were definitely about slick. Yeah. There was no, uh, I, I remember when we were kids and we were playing in different R&B bands and a group called the Commodores uh, and another group called the Buckeye Politicians would come to Harlem. And if you were a band on that show against either of those two bands, you knew that your demise was imminent. <laughs> <laughs> there was no way you were gonna be able to out slick those two bands. And that's what Bernard and I grew up with. Like, how do you outslick, you know, Parliament or somebody? If you're on the same show with the Brothers Johnson, what the hell are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and we just kept thinking, huh, what is that going to be? Because we've been crucified by some of those slick bands that would come to town. And we, all, we, all we used to think about was, like, how do we hold our own against Mother's Finest, you know, the Gap Band? Parliament. What do we do? Because we can't outfunk them. They're just too funky for words. So we thought you gotta slick. It. You gotta outslick them. Like, you know, Parliament is slick, even yeah. though it's funky. It's yeah. very slick. It's all refined and the whole mothership thing and the diapers. And I mean, that's still <laughs> the same vibe from the twenty-something years ago when I first saw them. Mm. So that was our thing. We had to be sophisticated. We had to be slick. We had to have that great one-note rhythm patterns and stuff like that and coming up with the bops and the bips and the all of that syncopation but still make it sound like just like any person can do it yeah um i don't have to say to you that uh, if if a person doesn't realize this there are a handful of musicians on this planet on this planet that can play bernard edwards bass lines period it's just how it is um, I play with some of the greatest bass players ever and when I show them how a song like Everybody Dance really goes they go are you kidding me that's what he's playing no one can believe he's not playing with a pick and I said listen to the sound if you play with a pick it's going to be thin you, you, Chic Records don't have thin bass because he's got his <laughs> fingers it's know. the best pick you could imagine and bass players just cannot believe that that's how he's doing it and I say that's the essence of our sound that guitar and bass doing that that sort of joust between the two, that dance, if you will, that rhythmic uh, sparring. Can you talk a little bit more? Imagine that uh, no one has ever heard of the Apollo. Now, when you walked in there, can you describe the physical layout of it? Yeah. Because that must have been quite something for, for a young kid to go into. And The first time I walked into the Apollo, it looked huge to me. And it's funny because the Apollo is actually quite small by theater standards. Prior to playing at the Apollo, all of the gigs that I had done with Sesame Street were in the daytime, even though they were in big places, 
it was sort of different. It mirrored some of the gigs that I was already doing, like in the, the theme parks, Great Adventure and places like that. So the places where you played for kids almost didn't count, even though they felt big. As soon as I walked into the Apollo Theater, though, it looked and felt massive. It's an old theatrical house. It looks very much like a Broadway theater or an old-fashioned movie theater, um, you know, with the red and the, the, the sort of William Morrissey red velvet type of fabrics and stuff like that, a lot of woodwork, a lot of ornate carvings, just like an old-fashioned vaudeville uh, turn-of-the-century movie house. Yeah, well, I, it was originally a burlesque place. Which was, I didn't even yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> okay, no, what, no yeah, wonder it looks yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and, it was a burlesque uh, joint? Well, I mean, yeah, it was originally a, 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 yeah, a burlesque theater. Right. I think it was built in 19-something, 10 or right. something, ah, like, something yeah. around well, then. It and, certainly looks and like then, it. And then it was uh, turned into... But, I mean, uh, for instance, the, where did you play? Did you play on stage? Were oh, you yeah, in a yeah. pit? Were you, where, what was the yeah. deal there? Well, the Apollo Theater... Um, the house band, when I played there, like now I see the house band up in the balcony sometimes. When I played there, we pretty much were on stage. You got to remember that bands in those days looked very much like a regular big band, like Buddy Rich or something like that. So we'd be set up on tiers. Yeah. Um, How big was the band? Uh, it, it changed. The, the size of the band changed based on the talent uh, that was performing. Uh, so if you had... Uh, like, say you booked the show and none of the artists had horns in their show or in their records, which was rare. The size of the horn section would decrease because it wasn't necessary. So I always had a gig because every record had guitar in those days. <laughs> Thank God for that. <laughs> it was before uh, loops and sequencing, so I al they always had a guitar. Matter of fact, we would have two and three guitar players mm -hmm. a lot of the time. Right. So um, it was configured with a piano on the stage, a grand piano on the stage. Pianist usually was conducting. And, uh, and there was horns, and the, the guitar and bass were, like I said, we were in tears. So we very much yeah. looked like a regular big band at a, that you'd go to at a supper club, something like that. You yeah. know, or what you'd see in movies like Buddy Rich or any of those sort of jazz type of big Who bands. was in the band with you at that time? Oh, God. Um, I don't remember a lot of the names of the players. Okay. Um, Who was the musical director, in other words? Uh, well, there, there, were the two different, there were two different musical directors when I was there. I think his name was George Stubbs was one. King Curtis, who, you know, would be coming in from Aretha's band, because a lot of the people in that band were all Aretha's core band. Right. Um, so basically, through my stint, there were three band leaders. Okay. And did you also have, like, every new artist who'd come in would bring their own band leader, and you'd have to work under them? Yeah. The sort of basic way that it worked, if there were four acts on the bill, there would be the act and he or she would have their charts and their band leader would conduct us and show us what to do. I don't remember any act coming in without a band leader. Maybe Screaming Jay Hawkins came in without a band leader and a ranger and he just came in with the charts. But most acts like uh, Maxine Brown or uh, Aretha or any of those kind of people had their own yeah. band leaders, the Cadillacs. They would have you know, a guy conducting the band and in control of the charts who would give out the charts, take us all through the arrangements. It was very professional the way it was all run. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I guess, you know, also it was regular money and you were in town. Yeah, it was not only was it regular money, but it was like a union gig. We were getting paid scale. We were getting paid the same thing at the Apollo Theater that you got paid, I believe, for playing on Broadway. So uh, for musicians in New York, that's considered a really top-of-the-line gig because <laughs> most of the time we made, we made 15 to... 
25 and if it was a really good gig you get 30 or 40 dollars a man playing at a bar i think five sets a night was the normal thing it was certainly five maybe it was six hmm. and it was 40 minutes on and 20 minutes off right and that was all night long yeah and we loved it we couldn't wait <laughs> i mean bernard edwards had a fantastic job at the post office and he couldn't wait to take a leave of absence from the post office where he's getting paid mega money to go out and work for nothing playing at the uh, on the chitlin circuit for 15 20 25 30 dollars if we we're lucky at night uh-huh. let me let me ask you about some other artists that you've worked with who are very associated with new york even if a couple of them are maybe not directly from new york like for instance madonna wasn't born in new york right. but she's certainly yes. considered a new york chick so yeah. you know tell me something about working with her and also about her personality to work with um madonna i don't think i can say it enough is probably one of the greatest uh stars i've ever worked with her presence was obvious to me right away yeah the first night i met her i was actually going to to see another artist i was sent there by the record company by it was uh, columbia records at the time and the woman that i went there to see for columbia was fantastic she's beautiful great everything an incredible singer but this girl who came on as the opening act just blew me away just absolutely floored me she was original creative inventive and just felt like a star uh, so I wound up actually working with Madonna instead of the girl that I was actually hired to go see her work ethic is it's unbelievable working with Madonna was um, she taught me a lot you know because I thought that I was incredibly driven and focused and I found that Madonna and I would have a sort of um, contest to always see who would get to the studio first because I was very mm -hmm. punctual for a musician <laughs> and it's like no matter what I did she would always get there first even if she had just been swimming like you know 30,000 laps she'd still come into the studio soaking wet it was like it was like she had radar okay what time is now getting there quarter to 12 I'm gonna be there in 20 minutes to 12 so uh she she just impressed me as a person who was really professional, really wanted to do a great job, and was concerned about every aspect of the career. And that was impressive to me. She reminded me of another version of Bernard and myself who were driven, but not nearly as driven as Madonna, who, as we can see. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we sort of went, okay, this is okay with me. But, yeah. you know, she was like, no, no, it's intense. I need more. Yeah. Um, we've just got a few horns here. I think we'll just, this is a brass section we didn't need, but we'll just wait for them to go by. Thank you. Yes, thank you. That's, we heard we're that. We're in New York, yeah, man. we heard that. There you go. <laughs> okay, so another artist that's really associated with New York that uh, you worked with is Cindy Lauper. Yeah. Cindy was interesting to me because, one, I had actually seen her perform really early on in her career. And she was an amazing singer, an amazing talent. So by the time I worked with her, she was already famous. And I like Cindy because not only is she an incredible artist, but I liked her politics. I liked her outspokenness. It just reinforced what I always think uh, the job of rock and roll and those kind of musicians is all about. She gave me hope that that wasn't a dying breed. Hmm. 
Another very New York female. You see a lot of girls here, though, by the way. Uh, Debbie Harry. <laughs> well, yeah, that, oh, okay, that'll yeah. do. That'll do. Okay, go ahead. Who that, are you going to say? Well, well, it's okay. No, I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> I'm, I was going to get to her, but yeah, go ahead. Debbie, the quintessential sort of New York cool chick. Man, boy, was I ever in love with Blondie. Debbie is amazing to me. Um, she was a waitress at the bar where our band was the first band to play electric. It's a sort of semi-famous local hangout called Max's Kansas City. Yeah, I, did, I didn't actually know you guys played there. We were the first electric band to ever play at Max's. Wow. Before we played there, everything at Max's was acoustic because they didn't have a cabaret license. And uh, we were uh, working at this uh, place called Ungano's. We were the, uh, the band that played right before the Stooges. It was the Stooges, which was Iggy Pop's old band. Right. Uh, the, the Stooges, my band, which was called New World Rising, and our opening act was called Alice Cooper, whose <laughs> <It was laughs> rap at the time, at least this was the word on the street, was that he was a reincarnation of a witch named Alice Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the lineup. And we had contractual disputes with the owners, so we had all of these kids coming from our high school to come and see us. We didn't know what to do, so we called Miss Mickey Ruskin at uh, Max's and said, hey, man, can we come and play? It was my manager at the time, uh, whose name is Toby Mamus, who is Alice Cooper's manager and uh -huh. has been ever since that day. Uh -huh. He probably got, I didn't even think about it, didn't put two and two together. He, met, he probably met Alice because he was the opening act for us all. Mm. And uh, so Toby Mamus was our guy, and uh, he called Mickey Ruskin. We were all high school students. Yeah. He called him and convinced him to let us play there. And he said, oh, by the way, they have drums and amplifiers, which were the two no-nos when you don't have a cabaret license, no drum and no amplifier. Huh. So we brought in our drums and amps, and Mickey never saw a crowd like that. We had Max's Kansas City was packed. Huh. <laughs> it was like, I guess I better start having drums and amplifiers. The difference between the size of our crowd and the normal Max's crowd was yeah. three times the size. Well, and you, that started the whole electric thing. Sure, and but I mean, the style of music your band was playing was presumably pretty different from Oh yeah, 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 we we we, we were well, we we were. It wasn't what we would call pop. It was in those days. It was fusion rock. So the bands that we liked were Blood, Sweat, and Tears. The more jazzy, Ten Wheel Drive yeah. bands like that. A lot of horns and you know jazz influenced bands because yeah. we thought of ourselves as like, hey man, we're alternative jazz rockers. You know that yeah. was our thing. So like the precursor to jam bands. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the club's known for the punk thing, and then suddenly you're telling me, hey, you know, you guys were the first guys, and you and you had this huge audience there, and so obviously it was a new audience for the club. Right. Yeah, and they dug it. I mean, it was all high school students who couldn't, who see in those days New York was very lax. Also, I think that of course I know the drinking age was just 18, so everything was different. Can you say something about the? the scene in the club because I mean there's loads of stories about that but you were there you played there what, what were the people like what kind of stuff went on in the club uh, well Max's Kansas City us was amazing because uh, we were young we were 17 maybe 18 I don't think we were 18 because we loved the fact that we were in a bar so we had to be 17 if we were 18 <laughs> it was just normal so we were 17 and uh, what was great about Max's was that it allowed us to mingle with adults, people who were over 18 were adults to us. And then they used to have a happy hour thing going on there. So that's how we got our food because the food was free. I, I'll never forget this, man. There was chicken wings. They used to have chicken wings at Max's Kansas City. 
And all you had to do was buy a couple of drinks and you can eat chicken wings all day. And that was after presumably people got off of work. Well, to us, our work was going to school. So the fact that we could go there and hang out was amazing. And there were a lot of girls there who used to come over from the School of Visual Arts and, uh, and the new school. So it was like amazing. We'd meet girls, get free food, and get drunk. Wow. Sounds perfect. <laughs> it's like heaven. On, it was utopia. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, oh, what was I, the girl you were going to mention? Well, no, I, the next one on my little list here was somebody one might think was unusual for you to be working with. Uh, Laurie Anderson? Well, Laurie Anderson. All right, yeah. Laurie, I'm not really sure how Laurie and I hooked up, but I know we dug each other. Laurie was really cool, man. I, you know... Me coming from, from the downtown scene, I, you know, a lot of people don't realize that I, I was born in the village. Most of those people sort of moved there, but I, my whole life, I went to school at PS41 on 11th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue. I mean, I know what the, I know original Ray's Pizza is Ray's Pizza on the corner of 6th Avenue and 11th Street across from what used to be Blimpy's. That's Ray's Pizza. <laughs> All that other stuff is not the original. That's Ray's. So, um, that's my childhood, that whole area of Greenwich Village. And there were very few children because most of the children lived in that area, 11th Street, 12th Street. Um, a lot of my friends lived in 69 uh, West 9th Street, places like that. But I lived very far west. I lived on Greenwich Street, which is really far west, just two blocks from the Hudson River. Mm-hmm. There were no kids over there, no families. It was all sort of artists and Lost, and the only families were probably one block away in West Beth, but I didn't even see any kids. I, I didn't know any kids from West Beth all my childhood, not one. Did you ever uh, hang out in any of the folk clubs and see some of the new artists who were coming out at that time? Yeah, well, the, the, when the folk scene was happening really, really big, I was still young, so I, I was into it, but uh, I, I graduated from folk to blues and electric stuff like almost instantly because when I was around in those days the big thing was that you know Bob Dylan had committed blasphemy by going to an electric guitar it was like a big deal so I kept thinking well Bob Dylan is about as cool as it gets so I want to just skip the folk part and just go right to the Dylan (laughs) however you know I did hang out a little bit uh, at a a place on uh, McDougal Street which was run by the Salvation Army I think it was called the the answer I'm not sure. I think that was it, the answer. And, uh, of course, I used to go to Cafe Wa, especially after the whole Hendrix fame thing. We, you know, we all hung out there. Also, the place that's uh, now called Electric Lady Recording Studios, you know, before Jimmy bought it, was actually a nightclub called Generation. Huh. And we used to hang yeah. in Generation. I remember the first time I saw Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page and those kind of cats. They were all playing, you know, they were hanging out at Generation. Yeah. And Generation was such a hot scene. I think that's why Hendrix said, Dan, let me just buy this place. It's just great vibes in here. That's a guess on my part. But, yeah, Generation was the spot. A place called The Scene, Steve Paul Scene, right. was happening. And just right there on 8th Street, we had Generation on one side of the street. The other side of the street was the 8th Wonder. Down the block on the east side was a joint called the Electric Circus, which is a place I loved. I mean, I can't tell you how much acid I dropped in that joint. Because <laughs> so, they used to have a f- padded rubber room. We'd go in there and they'd like have all these trip f- tapes going just in a sequence. And it was amazing. 
<laughs> Great. I uh, can't believe how old I am. Damn. Like, people don't <laughs> even remember something like that. You know, like a foam rubber room where you just bounce around the walls. Well, if you took that much acid, it's <laughs> great that you can remember it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay, let's talk about another unusual record that you did or uh, that might be perceived as an unusual record for you to do, uh, Carly Simon. You know, it's funny that uh, the Carly Simon record, Why, um, I, I can't tell you. You know, sometimes you do a record and you think it's amazing and the disappointment is just incredible when we came up with that whole song and that concept we thought it sounded great we thought it was really unique and interesting and when we tried to go to radio with it we also thought this was our great crossover moment wow we get to work with carly simon like nothing i mean absolutely nothing zero radio was even saying to us oh well, we don't support carly simon on this station and we went what are you talking about? This is, you know, anticipation. This is the woman who was on the charts. Well, I don't know what Carly had done, but uh, I did a, an afternoon on the radio at WNEW, which was the big rock station. I kept thinking, wow, I remember used to hear Carly Simon. And when we went in with Why, nothing. They wouldn't even play it. They, was it a, like a black music, white music thing? Is that uh, why? You know, maybe I'm naive. I don't know what the deal was. But all I know is that that's, to me... That's one of the best records that we've ever done. It's yeah, like it was a big clever hit. and cool. Yeah, it was a big hit in England. Yeah, I heard that it was a big hit in England, but I wasn't in England, so I don't really know. Yeah, um, yeah. But it was really tremendously disappointing to me because on that album where Why Exist is an album, it's a soundtrack album called Soup for One. And we knew Soup for One, as clever and as cool as it was, was Sheik's attempt to be not a disco band because this was all the disco sucks movement was roaring and uh and we figured well we'll show people what we really are which is actually what we've always been but you know so carly simon was our big ticket out of that disco classification and we did why which to us was a great pop song we thought it was going to be huge and it was just nothing i mean nothing <laughs> i was like i mean and that's boy, am I sympathetic with artists who uh, have an incredible long run and then you put out something that you think is fantastic mm. and it just does nothing. I, I remember when um, the film Blade Runner came out yeah. after Star Wars and we had Harrison Ford in a Ridley Scott movie and it was like, wow, this has got to be amazing. And you, everybody ran to the theater and they were expecting like a different kind of Star Wars and it was this much more adult sort of heady science fiction and people just didn't know what to think and i kept thinking when we did why this was great for us and it's like we gave it to people and like in america it was like people didn't know what to think it was like yeah. what is this record it's not like a disco record it's yeah. not an r&b record it's what is this well now it came out under carly simon's name right right okay now do you think it would have been more successful if it had come out as a chic record featuring carly Simon, like they do today you know a lot of records uh, maybe so you know featuring so-and-so maybe in those days that might have been clever marketing chic featuring carly simon or carly simon featuring chic yeah I, that would have probably been really cool i don't know man it was way before you did records like that yeah because it was usually an artist i mean uh, that just didn't happen and we didn't think of it like that it was carly simon's record 
we didn't do anything different for Carly than we did with Sister Sledge. Right. <laughs> it was right. like, right. I mean, Sister Sledge, we are family, is certainly Sister Sledge featuring Sheik and yeah. Luther Vandross and everybody else that we knew for that yeah. matter. Yeah, yeah. But Carly Simon being a white artist, I mean, radio programming in this country is very rigid in terms oh, of, yeah. at, at that time, especially black stations, white stations, right. rock stations. But we thought because it was rock, and this is being naive on our part, we thought that because it was rock, rock was the one place that didn't, uh, at least the rap, at least what I believe, what I grew up believing, rock to me represented freedom. Mm. Uh, black radio was restricted, but once we go to rock, I mean, look at David Bowie with Young America. I mean, David Bowie was still the same guy sure. who did Spiders from Mars, but he could do Young Americans and yep. be the man. Yeah. I think that was like his biggest seller until Let's Dance. Mm. So he could do records like that, and everybody knows David Bowie's a rock artist. Uh, you can think in, ter in history and think of all of the huge rock artists that have done blatant R&B records, and they're huge. You know, I love it when George Michael said, I'm going to have the number one black record in America, and then he uh -huh. went out and did it. Uh -huh. you know, um, that door swings that way, but it doesn't swing both ways. So when a black artist says that they're a rock artist, and I know thousands of them, those stations don't play their records. Yeah. Um, I still remember the whole concept of when it when the band In Living Color came out. Or no, yeah. or Living Color out. Yeah. In Living Color is the television show. Yeah. Living Color. And how hard the record company with Mick Jagger's thumbprint on it and everything had to work so hard to get them played on rock radio. Yeah. And that record is a stunning rock record. It sure is. Stunning. Um, but that's, they had to work just because it was black. And I know where that comes from because... Chic was a rock band, a black rock band, before we became Chic. We couldn't get arrested. We'd send our demos out. People would love our music. And then we'd walk into the office, and they were, they'd always start talking to the one white guy who was in our band like he was the leader. Right, <laughs> was right. like, and Rob Sabini would always say, hey, I'm just high. Those guys are the leader. Talk to them. And they were like, wow, really? This is their music? Yeah. So that's when uh, it seemed very clear to us that uh, we certainly couldn't uh, be a rock band. Right. And, and we, if we wanted a record deal. Right, right. Well, you made the right decision. And, and not only that, uh, the disco era, I mean, obviously you guys were very important in that era and you carved out your own very special place in it. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the locations that we're covering in this show is the, the Disco Palace of Degradation, Studio 54. Ah, and there's the, the, the greatest club of all time I will go down <laughs> in the record books and say and I've been to some great clubs there was nothing before or since that's like Studio 54 ever elaborate big boy um, well Studio 54 was the blueprint for great clubs to come as a matter of fact I'm sure that every club owner doesn't make any difference whether it's the big gigantic mega clubs or the hippest sort of intimate she-she for the A-list crowd clubs still use Studio 54 as the yardstick by which they judge their coolness. And if they don't say it, they're lying to you. Because <laughs> I know that's what they're all thinking. The red velvet rope, you come in, you stay out, you know, crowd outside the door no matter yep. what. Making people feel like this was the place to be. You got to be inside because something is happening in this place that's more unique than in your miserable, stupid little life. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> people risking their lives, people even dying to try and get in. That's unheard of. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And to this day, when a person opens a club, that's what they hope for, that they have something like a Studio 54, where people will do anything to try and get into it. And, and it's the place to be every star, regardless of what 
makes you a star has to be there, has to be seen there. And clubs have come and gone since then, but it is still the one. In Studio 54, everything was legal. It was the culture and the people who were part of that culture that dictated what happened in in the place. And once somebody would do something, that became standardized practice. So in other words, if somebody were having sex out in the open and nothing bad seemed to happen, well, that just became what everybody does for the next six months or whatever. And if a guy walked into the girl's bathroom and nobody seemed alarmed, the next thing you know, guys walked in the girls' bathrooms and vice versa. It was just commonplace. It, it, it just became a place that, and I, I, I think, I love to think of it like this, that if you were in, you belonged in. If you were out, you belonged out. So once you got inside Studio 54, anybody you spoke to, anybody you talked to, already was pre-stamped cool you're you're cool because you got in here you belong in here you're one of the cool beautiful people yeah describe the physical layout of the club for us the physical layout of studio 54 is not unlike the apollo (laughs) it's a very sort of of turn-of-the-century kind of movie house looking place um very much a theater in in the old traditional classical sense of the word a loge and a balcony and all of that sort of stuff just like a regular theater like a broadway theater very much like a movie theater, a, a sort of grand lobby that you'd come in with, mirrored lobby. You know, it looked very much like a turn-of-the-century movie palace would look like, very sort of glitzy and gilded and things like that, like gold uh, highlights and very, very traditional, uh, which is also what made it an exciting place to have a club because prior to that, no one would have a club in a movie theater. And the music that they played there? The music that they played at studio... Um, was incredible because it had all of the vibe of an underground disco like a lot of the gay places in New York. The gay places in New York were all known for having the most avant-garde, coolest music because their philosophy was my audience is sophisticated and hip and primal at the same time. I just got to keep them on the dance floor. You know, uh-huh. No gay club wanted an empty dance floor because it was all about that interactivity, the sweaty bodies, the people, the freedom of being sort of primal and reducing uh, you know, your night's activity to a very sexual encounter. Uh, all of my gay friends used to explain to me, they'd say, Niall, just think of it like this. Uh, with the, the need to be loved like a woman and the promiscuity and the desire to conquer of a man. I used to say, wow, I never quite thought of it that way. <laughs> But that's, and you would feel that vibe. It was very sexy and raw, and the music was primal and reflected that. Um, the the story that uh, I've read, of course, is that you guys couldn't get in at the beginning, and so... Well, what, what happened was, uh, because our first album was really doing well, uh, not only was it big, but it was still underground. And to me, that's the coolest thing, is to be underground and still be popular on the charts. So Grace Jones had heard about these new guys, this new production team, uh, these chic guys, and uh, she was thinking about having us do her next album. And Grace Jones, at that point, was the diva of the underground disco club scene. Right. She had the whole French thing going on. She was exotic. She had everything. And her music was fantastic to me. So uh, Bernard and I went there. It was uh, New Year's Eve. I would imagine it was, must have been New Year's Eve, 1977, going to 78. And uh, we hadn't, yeah, it had to be because 
the song that we had out was Dance, 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 and at New Year's Eve was now it had turned into Everybody Dance, which was in a strange way cooler than Dance, Dance, Dance because it was underground and really hip. So we went to Studio 54, and I guess Grace thought, because our music was so popular, probably in the places that she frequented all the time, that of course these guys have to be going to Studio 54. It was probably no problem for Niall and Bernard to get in. So we went there, and we told the doorman that Grace Jones had us on her list, uh, which she didn't, I guess, because <laughs> she didn't think about it. And uh, anyway, needless to say, they didn't let us in. New Year's Eve at Studio 54, big night, 1977, going to 78. We were, needless to say, depressed and dejected, and we wanted to get into Studio 54. We wanted to see what it was like, and we thought this was the perfect opportunity. Grace Jones herself invited us. Anyway, so we were dressed in our best outfits you can pull together for New Year's Eve, and um, in those days, music was not only our livelihood, but it was also our recreation and our enjoyment. So we took our dejected selves around the corner to my apartment, which... Uh, <laughs> You know, my whole life still exists right on 52nd Street today. My office is just across the street from that old apartment and that old recording studio. And we went to our the old apartment, and we bought our own bottles of champagne and other types of libations, and <laughs> we started to uh, feel good, and we started jamming. That's what we did. We feel depressed. Let's go jam and play music. I mean, think of how great that is. Like, we can't get into the hottest club in the world. We're all dressed up and we're depressed, what do we do? Let's go play some music. Great. <laughs> we went around the corner to my crib. Bernard had his bass there, I had my guitar. We plugged in and we started jamming. Down, 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 <laughs> After jamming on this for God knows how long, Bernard looks at me and says, you know this shit is happening, right? You know that, right? You know this shit is happening. And I'm thinking, he's right, it is happening. We could have the biggest record ever. And all I did was reflect back on my hippie days, you know, up against the wall, motherfucker, and, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. And I kept saying, man, is this incredible. Our, our second album is going to lead with a song called Fuck Off. Wow, is this cool? And uh, we just talked amongst ourselves, and it was like Bernard had the real in, the hippie in me, who thinks like we're still fighting the revolution, so to speak. So it's like, man, you know, we're not going to get this on the radio. And all I kept thinking, no, this is Abby Hoffman. Come on, yeah, fuck <laughs> off. No, 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 man. So we changed it from Fuck Off to Freak Off, and that was just hideous. Ah, Freak Off. Nah, didn't have any spark or sex appeal. And then in one instant, me being the old hippie, ja you know, jazz acid guy, you know, whoa, hey, freak out, you know, like when you have a bad trip. And then Bernard, yeah, plus they're doing that new dance, the freak. Uh -huh. So we decided we were going to usurp the freak and, and make it like we thought of it. It was going to be like chubby checker, come on, baby, let's do the twist. So everybody's out there dancing this dance called the freak. So we decided to put Lu in front of it, make it French. And we were going to say, that's our dance. We thought of it. Yeah. It's called Le Freak. We, you know, we were going to steal it. We were going to usurp the dance and make it ours. And it was perfect that we have a dance called The Freak. We want to say fuck off, but we use freak out as a euphemism for fuck off. Ah, freak out. And then we wrote about Studio 54, the place in which we had never even been inside. And we just turned it into what we thought everybody 
already knew. We just made it up because that's what we had heard. You know, oh, Studio 54 is the place with all the new dancers and all the new beautiful people. So we wrote, have you heard about the new dance craze? Listen to us. I'm sure you'll be amazed. Big fun to be had by everyone. It's up to you, surely. You know, young and old are doing it. It's called the Freak. They're doing it night and day. Allow us. We'll show you the way. Uh, you know, come on, baby. Let's do the twist. First, put your hands in the, you know. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, great. Radio. <laughs>